Hello and a very warm welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who wants to enjoy growing their own flowers, fruits and vegetables. I'm Dan. And I'm Julia. And together we're two good gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast, so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. We upload a new episode every fortnight packed with news, timely tips and the occasional interview with gardeners we admire. We know you're busy people, so we like to keep things short and sweet. Think of this podcast as a bento box of delicious goodies to be consumed with gusto. And now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode 8, sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Welcome back to Two Good Gardeners. This is the final episode of series one. I can't believe how the time has flown by. We've had the best time making this podcast. It's been a steep learning curve for both of us, but so well worth it. We want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners for the encouragement, positive feedback and some five-star reviews. We feel very fortunate to have your support and that of our sponsor, Alatex, who have given us free reign to crack on and make the podcast we both wanted to make. Yes, thank you all so much for listening. I think it's safe to say we have really enjoyed our foray into broadcasting once we overcame our nerves. Well, that's me anyway. We have loved sharing ideas, tips, projects, products and horticultural know-how with you and knowing that we have helped with the management of garden pests, especially the dreaded box moth caterpillars. We can't wait to return at the end of the summer with Series 2. Now, Dan, what have you been up to since I last saw you? Well, I've been loving the warmer weather um, and a little bit of rain. We had yet more rain this morning, which was very, very welcome. Uh, It's a bit of a fine line for me, though. I'm not a lover of hot, humid weather. So anything over 24 degrees and I start to melt. (laughs) We've been getting ready for our garden opening, which is at the end of July. And it's starting to feel like our whole life is revolving around those two dates but we always look forward to it and meeting new people. I've still got lots to do especially painting all the wood panelling around the gardens and I've been doing lots of shows of course so recently the unusual plants fair at Gilbert White's house in Hampshire which is just the most stunning location and Selborne the village where the house is is a picture perfect English village so really beautiful I was quite dazzled with all the roses growing over the thatched cottages and of course the website's been really busy the last few days because I've been having a sale and making space for all the new lines that'll be coming in in the autumn. Excellent well Dan you actually sound like master of all trades. (laughs) (laughs) not quite (laughs) well on the topic of your website i do love a bargain is it too early to mention the christmas word i might have to log on later i too have been busy i had a fascinating tour of the museum of gardening with the creator and founder clive gravett last week it's housed at the south downs garden center near hassocks not too far from me and is packed full of garden memorabilia, tools and mowers from all the decades, along with hugely interesting facts. I'd highly recommend a visit. 
Um, it's within a garden centre, which is huge and also packed full of tempting plants and products. Um, this week, I was extremely lucky to join Alatex on a private tour of Kew Gardens and sat through a couple of talks. It was a behind the scenes day. It was fascinating. But early last week, I was struck down with sunstroke and couldn't function for two days. So it's a warning to us all. Wear a hat if you have to be out in the midday sun or try to garden early in the morning or the evening when it's less intense. I, for one, have certainly learnt my lesson. Oh dear, it's a really horrible thing, isn't it, sunstroke? But so easy, yeah. you know. In hindsight, it's uh, it's very easy to see where you went wrong. But in practice, <laughs> it's easy to stay outside too long. You know, you're having fun, enjoying the weather, but... Uh, you can get dehydrated and yes. hot very quickly, can't you? Yeah. That brings us neatly on to this week's hot topic, which is how we adapt our gardens to cope with hotter, drier summers. Last summer, of course, we experienced one of the hottest, driest summers ever on record. And if the meteorologists are to be believed, they're going to become more frequent. Immediately, I think we all started reaching for lists of drought-tolerant Mediterranean plants only to be clobbered with a wet November, a freezing December and a very cold, soggy spring. Millions of plants perished during nine months of unprecedented weather weirdness. So how are we as gardeners to prepare for such erratic conditions? Well, exactly. And I was thinking, Dan, that maybe we should just rip up our script, bearing in mind I woke up to the most torrential thunderstorm this morning. And of course, our <laughs> episode we've planned is on drought. But anyway, you're right. It is important not to panic, though, with all of this going on in, in our weather, as most of us have now had some rain. Gardens like us will need to adapt, but not overnight. They'll evolve over time. There are loads of notable gardens uh, who have experimented and are experimenting with different ways of growing. The Beth Chateau Garden in Essex, for example, where part of the garden is never watered. And at Sissinghurst, where the National Trust have recreated a Greek-inspired garden called Delos, which was originally envisioned by Vita Sackville West and her husband, Harold Nicholson. Gardeners like Jimmy Blake in Ireland are planting gardens entirely in sand. So we can learn a lot about future garden styles from these pioneers. I, for one, teach people not to water too much at my workshops. Plants put much deeper roots down, making healthier plants. I don't usually water the veg garden unless we are in a drought. Overwatering just creates weaker root systems. Yes, you're absolutely right. And shallow watering, watering not enough, encourages the roots to develop very close to the surface of the soil which makes them even more vulnerable to drying out in dry weather so um, water thoroughly and deeply and not too often that is the best trick yes and they can keel over in strong winds too can't they with shallow roots yes <laughs> like us absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so the good news is we don't have to make any knee-jerk reactions to adapt our garden to hotter drier summers but we have got some hints and tips for how to manage the change in your garden. Julia, why don't you kick us off? Okie dokie. So I'm going to start off with materials. Carefully chosen hard landscaping materials help control moisture and keep gardens cool in the summer. Impervious materials such as concrete, paving and tarmac increase the risk of flooding, especially in urban areas. It's not that we shouldn't use them in our gardens, but it's a case of combining them with porous surfaces and planted areas so that water can soak away or be captured and saved for later use. 
Although permeable, artificial grass can become ferociously hot on a fine day. It's also highly unsustainable. Light-coloured materials reflect the sun and remain relatively cool compared to dark materials that absorb and retain the heat, which in theory is common sense. However, in a south-facing garden, white walls and pale surfaces can create uncomfortable glare, making some shading necessary. A combination of materials is often the best way forward. The higher the proportion of planting to hard landscaping, the cooler your garden will be, especially if the planting creates shade. Even a lawn will be many degrees cooler than a hard surface, which is why we enjoy sitting on them so much. And I have noticed Pumpkin Cat has been spending a lot of time on the lawn as well. It must be hot with a fur coat on. That's true. And our dogs love nothing better than a bit of grass to roll around on. And you can easily understand why. You know, we all love to sprawl on the grass, whether it's to uh, tickle our backs or just enjoy a nice (laughs) picnic. So as you said earlier, we generally water our gardens far too often to the extent that they eventually become reliant on irrigation rather than self-sufficient. And we're all going to have to change our relationship with treated water and adapt all aspects of our garden to become more drought tolerant. Of course, the secret is always in the soil. And if we look after our soil, almost everything else will come good. Adding compost, manure or pelleted wool will improve water retention, especially if your soil is thin and light. You can add grit and lime to improve drainage on heavy clay and on all soils, mulching with compost, leaves, chipped bark or decorative gravel will reduce water loss from the surface by as much as 20%. Further water can be saved by laying lawns, planting trees, shrubs and perennials in autumn rather than spring. And this is something that a lot of people don't do because spring has become the typical time to plant. But actually autumn is a much better time to plant many plants. Anything that is hardy, it's a good time to plant because those plants are going to enjoy six months of cool, wet weather when they can establish a good root system before there's any risk of drought coming along. And if you start with small whips or plug plants, they will also establish far more quickly and become more resilient because they will have established themselves in the environment that they're going to be in in future. And if you start with small plants, they're also cheaper to replace if any of them should fail. Big pot-grown specimens are going to create you a lot of work because they demand regular watering and might take several seasons to establish. So do start small if you can. Watering thoroughly and deeply during a plant's first year will set them up brilliantly for the future. So although you may have to water them now, in future you shouldn't have to. And this is especially relevant for trees and shrubs. Wherever space allows, then storing rainwater is an absolute necessity now, whether it's a functional water butt or a decorative feature such as a pond or a metal tank. In large gardens, a shallow depression in an expanse of lawn can become a temporary lagoon during heavy rain, helping water to stay on your garden and not flood elsewhere. And I think, from memory, Julia, you have such a thing in your garden, don't you? 
I do. Not deliberately put there, obviously. <laughs> so there used to be an ice house from turn of the century and it's made a huge depression in the lawn. And um, actually it's got slightly deeper as the drought has ensued this summer. But I must admit the birds were having a lovely time this morning on the makeshift pond. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. It makes it quite a nice little ephemeral feature, doesn't it? To have yeah, that it in does your garden. actually. You're very lucky to have that space. Yeah. But the key thing is keep the water within the bounds of your garden if you possibly can. I think we all want to avoid watering. It's hard work and it uses water and that costs money nowadays. But it is necessary in some situations. Drip irrigation systems are exempt from water restrictions such as hosepipe blams because they're seen as being relatively efficient and not too much water is wasted. They're a really good solution for roof gardens, terraces and hard to reach areas. So I have something like that at the back of my raised beds that I can't reach from the front. If you grow lots of plants in pots as I do, it's a good idea to Put them close together because that reduces transpiration or water loss from the plants and it also speeds up the watering process when you have to do it. And if you do need to water borders and vegetable plots, a good deep soaking in the evening, directing the flow of water to the base of the plant ensures that the water gets to the roots and that plants have time to take it up and come out all fresh again in the morning. And finally, with holidays coming up, now is the time to start asking a neighbour or a neighbour's children if they would do some watering for you while you're away. As we talked about last week, several plants need of regular watering, otherwise it causes problems, particularly things like tomatoes. So if you can get someone in to do the watering for you, give them a little bit of training before you go then that will see your garden through until you return from your vacation. A little trick that Julia has taught me is about sinking terracotta pots into the soil. So if you put them into the soil, again, that will reduce the amount of water that's lost from the edges of the pots. And if it rains, the water will go into the pot from the sides and from the top. Yes, that's good. So I'm trialling a kind of ready-made water system uh, by a company called Global Autopots. It's a water tank that you fill up with a seep hose system which works on gravity. So I'm quite excited about having that. I've got four tomatoes outside, an aubergine, and I'm going to see if that works. But of course, it's all to do with managing temperature as well. You can help by doing that. So a hot garden is not a comfortable garden. As the summers get warmer, we need to start thinking more like Mediterranean, South African and Australian garden owners in incorporating shade-giving features. These can be temporary, for example, sails, parasols or awnings, or even permanent features such as trees, pergolas and arbours that provide a lovely canopy, creating shade. Increasing the amount of planting also cools a garden, as does surface, so plants, including lawns, do not heat up like the hard materials we mentioned earlier and constantly add refreshing water vapour to the air. Water features work in much the same way with the additional benefit of suggesting a degree of coolness, especially if there's movement and sound. Greenhouses too, they need care, so you can add shade with blinds, shutters, you can dampen floors, open windows and doors daily, and just generally try to be temperature aware and keep on it. 
Yeah, I really agree with your point about planting for shade because when we first moved here 17 years ago, our little courtyard garden, which faces east, southeast, was an absolute furnace in the summer. And now the trees have grown up, they create a beautiful sort of cool microclimate. It's very stable as well, so the variation temperature through the day is not too much. And sometimes we come in through the gate from a baking hot street and walk into the garden and it's like one of those Moroccan riads when you get inside and it's all full of shade and birds tweeting and it's really very beautiful. I think probably because we're so deprived of sun as a nation generally, we have always wanted to invite more sunshine into our gardens. But as it does get hotter and drier, we will have to think more about the benefits of shade, both for ourselves and for our pets and for the plants that we can grow. Yes, absolutely. Your garden sounds absolutely charming, Dan. I'm making it sound probably better than it is, but there we are. Don't believe the hype. (laughs) But of course, the thing that most gardeners are going to think of when it comes uh, to drought is how to adapt their planting and how to plant things that will stay alive through dry periods. But also it's important to think about what will stay alive through cold, wet periods, which we will still get in abundance, I'm sorry to say. It might surprise listeners that native plants are among the most drought-tolerant plants at our disposal, especially when they're established. And that's why we see the countryside rebound so successfully after a hot summer. There's always sort of dramatic stories in the news about the fact that trees are losing their leaves early. And there is a case that over a long period of time, some trees may become very stressed by multiple dry summers in a row. But you just have to look around at the countryside at this time of year to see that very few ill effects have befallen our woods and hedgerows and meadows. They all look as good as they ever have done. So where it's appropriate, native species are a really excellent choice for hedges and wilder areas. And I was just discussing at the weekend with a grower of maples, just what a beautiful tree the field maple is, one of our native species, but very, very rarely grown as a garden specimen tree. In my opinion, just as beautiful as any other Acer. But we like to fill our gardens with exotics, and I just mean by that plants that are not from our own country. And of course, these exotics often come from countries with conditions that are quite different to our own weather conditions here. And I think that that is probably likely to always be the way. Some plants will relish drier conditions because that's what they're used to, and others may well struggle. I think the plants most at risk of our hotter, drier summers are those sort of sappy, flimsy annuals and perennials which cottage gardens rely on. So I'm thinking particularly things like delphiniums, which need that sort of cool, medium sort of climate and and don't enjoy the extremes of temperature that we seem to be getting. So we might have to be less reliant on some of those plants. Doesn't mean that we can't grow them. They might just be a little bit harder to do. I find it's really helpful to look at places like Madeira, South Africa and Mexico, which have warm summers and fairly wet winters. 
when choosing plants for my garden. And if you, there's lots of plants that come from those areas, of course, notably dahlias that come from Mexico, that of course are very happy as our temperatures warm up a little bit in this country. And in those countries, a lot of plants tend to do their growing in the winter months, the winter months in those places, and then they go dormant or stop growing so much during the summer. The only problem is that they are generally warmer countries and so many of those plants, dahlias, salvias, some of the big geraniums, agapanthus, they are not totally hardy here so a little bit of protection is needed. And I've chosen salvias to be my pick of the bunch in this episode, spoiler alert, but I'll be putting a list of plants that are tolerant of hotter, drier summers in the show notes. Yeah, that's good. And on a, on another note, just quickly, is that I, if we do carry on getting really harsh torrential downpours, you know, the rain came down so hard this morning that I've actually got a lot of plants that have been snapped off with the weight of the rain. So maybe we need to think about upping our staking game as well, which is not something we've had to think about. Yeah, you're so right with that, because I saw a few things on Instagram today with people with some very beautiful grasses that had just been absolutely flattened today by the rain. And that will, again, be a feature, you know, plants that very easily break apart. I think a lot of the problem this year and one of the worst things for a garden is that nearly all of the plants in our garden this year have done the majority of their growing during a period of no rain Mm. so for six weeks or so they've grown not knowing what it is to to be rained on and then all of a sudden this stuff descends from the heavens and they're they're not strong enough to take it so particularly in a year like this year you're right staking is really important because those plants have got no inbuilt strength to to cope with that really Mm. a a windy rainy start to summer will help to toughen plants up yeah I mean I must admit I know the feeling so on a final note don't forget to look (laughs) after yourselves so avoid gardening during the heat of the day so that's between 10 and 4 if you can drink plenty of water more than you think you need and wear light clothes including a hat and of course sunscreen and don't forget mosquito repellent if you're out in the evening or at dusk they're blighters and actually I seem to get bitten by anything during the middle of the day anyway it's all sorts of things hiding in the jungle it's always when I'm watering in the evening that I get bitten by something but it is well worth especially if you've got any long grass or things in your garden then just making sure that any ankles need to be covered or protected so hopefully that's a helpful list of hints and tips to help you create a more drought tolerant garden in future Remember, it's not going to happen overnight, but if you start making some small changes over the years, your garden will be ready to cope with whatever the climate has to throw at it. Now, in every episode, Julia enlightens us with a seasonal project, and I highlight a product from my online garden shop. So let's see what bright idea Julia has to keep us all occupied while we're taking a summer break. 
Well, I've got lots of tricks up my sleeve this time, Dan, not just one. So as the holiday season fast approaches, it's easy not to pay as much attention to the garden as families and guests descend, invited or uninvited, and we spend more time away. So I thought it'd be a good idea to furnish you all with some thrifty tips to keep those edibles happy and healthy and ornamentals too. First and foremost, though, tomatoes. Now, tomatoes need quite a lot of maintenance. They grow so quickly in the summer months and can become a jungle in only a matter of days. So it is important to keep them in check. By doing this, you can remove the lower leaves on all cordon tomatoes, exposing the stems. This allows air to circulate and helps keep any pests and fungal diseases away. Snap off any side shoots that you see growing off the main stem of cordon tomatoes. To identify them, they look just like another stem, which appears in the apex between the leaf and the stem. If left too long, it can be really confusing to know which is the main stem and which is a side shoot. And not only that, they can also take away valuable energy from the plant, which is better used into the production of fruit, not on growing more stems and foliage. If you are growing tomatoes in a greenhouse or polytunnel, then I suggest you do adopt my routine of tickling tomato flowers every evening. I do this when I water. It's much harder for bees and other pollinators to gain access along with a breeze. So by tickling the flowers, this helps pollinate the fruits. It's quite therapeutic too. Moving on to herbs, herbs need a little bit of maintenance because they will try to flower and during hot periods they try to flower even more. So remove the flowers every time you see them, chop them off, use them in salads, dry them, they're all edible and by doing this you will keep up a steady supply of fresh tasty leaves and bushier plants. This is particularly beneficial to the annual herbs so like basil or coriander. It's also useful for mint, sage and all those woody hardy herbs because after all, the main reason for growing them is their leaves, not to get a a woody plant. And also try to move basil near tomatoes because its pungent scent will help keep some pests away. So that's quite useful if you're going away and not able to manage it. In the vegetable patch or the garden, allow one or two vegetables to go to seed. This means let them flower. The bees and pollinators simply love them. And by the end of August, you will be able to collect thousands of seeds from that particular plant, ready to sow the following spring. Leek flowers, for example, look so pretty. Just imagine a pale pink version of the ornamental alliums that you see in the spring. And they are also one of the easiest seeds to collect. You just let nature do her work for you. You leave the flower heads to dry naturally in situation and collect the seeds on a dry day. And that means by just tapping the flower head and putting a pot below to collect them. If you don't want to do that, you can just chop off the dried flower heads and lay the flower head intact on top of some compost in a pot. And the seedlings will amazingly start springing up after winter next spring, even without much water if you forget them. Sunflowers too can go to seed. They make wonderful bird feeders in situation. The birds help themselves to the seeds or leave them and pick the dry flower heads and place them somewhere for the birds to help themselves to the seeds. Beans and sweet peas are also easy to save. Simply leave a few on the plant at the end of the season and pick the pods and continue to allow them to dry in their pods somewhere dry like a greenhouse or shed or kitchen window ledge and then store them, labelled of course. Then brassicas, if you're growing cauliflowers, brussels sprouts, broccoli, All of this family need to be netted 
um, and are, are much better if left somewhere shady. Uh, rhubarb can be stressed in the sun and the summer months so if you do see a flowering stem just remove it the plant will recover really quickly um, and then regularly pick your sweet peas and beans and peas to keep the production of more pods coming it's definitely a case of the more you pick the more they will produce the same goes for raspberries and courgettes and remember, you chose to grow courgettes, not marrows, so be on it. <laughs> um, feed the garden every two weeks is also quite useful, but obviously you'd need to manage that if you're going away for longer. So they are my thrifty tips to come manage your garden. Dan, what interesting and useful product are you going to tell us about? I bet you've got something relevant to our drought-tolerant tips, have you? I have indeed. And I, I have to say first, though, that I was feeling very virtuous up until the end of your um, tips there because I thought <laughs> I was ticking them off thinking, yes, I do that, I do that, I do that. And then you reminded me about sweet peas. And I don't think I've seen my allotment for a week. So I'm going to have armfuls of them tonight uh -oh. because if I let them go... I found out something very interesting having listened to another podcast uh, this weekend. I think it might have been the RHS podcast that um, the sweet pea that came back from last year, which is flowering like a monster, is called yes. All But Blue. So I think that's uh, A-double-L-B-U-double-T, All But Blue. And it's not blue, it's white with a mauve edge. But um, apparently it is known to be one of the most fragrant sweet peas that you can grow. Um, How interesting is that? And I would have to concur because a small bunch fills an entire room with its scent. Anyway, going off on a tangent. Oh, great tip. I'm going to interrupt you and say, I don't like you listening to competitors, but we'll let, let you off. It was the RHS. <laughs> <laughs> you have to keep your enemies close, as they say. <laughs> So, yes, my product of the week. And this week, you're right, it is something to do with drought tolerance. And it is wool pellets, which I have in my little arsenal of products that I take to my plant fairs. And they're from Romney Marsh Wools, who have uh, thousands of sheep down on Romney Marsh here in Kent. And they are genius little nuggets of British wool that come in a brown paper packet they're about the size of a peanut and they have been a bestseller since I launched them in April in fact I've had lots of customers coming back to buy more the pellets are made from the bits of fleece that are otherwise useless so they tend to come from around their derriere of the sheep or from its tummy which are bits of the fleece that can't really be used for anything else and the, and the wool is chopped up and it's made into pellets by the same machinery that makes pellets for wood-burning stoves and pizza ovens. So they look very similar to that if you've ever seen those. And these pellets have got multiple uses. What most people have been buying them for over the last couple of months is to protect plants from slugs and snails. So they are brilliant for hostas, dahlias, salads, sunflowers, anything that you've just planted out that's a little bit vulnerable. But their other really important quality is that they increase water retention in soil and compost. So wool has this amazing ability to hold water, a little bit like moss. In fact, it can hold 30% of its weight in water without even feeling wet to the touch. So it is quite an amazing material. 
So you can add that to your potting mixes, you can add that to your soil and it will hold on to lots of water. So it's absolutely brilliant in containers and in hanging baskets and troughs. And if you've missed the boat on that, because lots of us have planted up containers already, you can also use it as a mulch. So you can put it on the top of the pots, on the surface of your hanging basket and around anything new that you've planted and it will fluff up and form a sort of felty mat over the top which will hold the water in. And unlike lots of other mulches that uh, slugs and snails like to hide in, they really do not like wool. So you won't get that problem of uh, things sort of snuggling themselves down under a blanket of mushroom compost. Of course it is an organic substance so it will break down over time albeit slowly and when it does it's absolutely packed with nutrients so it's it's a fertilizer and a water retainer and a slug deterrent all in one and of course it's a British product made from a byproduct that wouldn't be used otherwise and just fabulous really I mean we should use a lot more of it and um, I'm very proud that I can source this particular product from Kent where I live and that it actually does work as well. So I've had, as I say, I've had lots of people coming back for more. Now these are not on my website at the moment, which is a pity, but if anybody does want to get hold of some, then just drop me an email at hello at stancoopergarden.com and I will send you some out from home. Brilliant, Dan. As you know, I have some and they are the most sustainable product on all fronts, aren't they? The packaging is biodegradable and actually when it's killed off or deterred the slugs and snails, it's a mulch, it protects the plant and then you can just compost the soil and the wool pellets which look like porridge by that stage as well. So it's brilliant (laughs) and they have a nutritious value. So I'm feeding my compost heap as an extra bonus. You are. I think if only there were more products like that around, but I'd really encourage people to give them a go because it's a good, sustainable product. Yeah, no, it's very good. So every episode, I choose my pick of the bunch and Julia shares her top of the crops. We are both absolutely spoiled for choice now because gardens are brimming with produce and flowers after all of this sun and rain. So I am absolutely sure that you're going to give us something that we'll all be lusting after this week. What is it, Julia? Oh, I hope so. You're right. I was sport for choice, but there was just one obvious contender, bearing in mind we're talking about drought-tolerant and Mediterranean plants, and it is the artichoke. So some of you won't know that you can grow them so easily in the UK in our climate. It's quite extraordinary. They are very easy to grow and they look magnificent. Don't worry if you don't have a vegetable garden because actually they can look stupendous in any bed or border, adding height and architectural interest and the most stunning silver foliage. So by artichokes, I am referring to globe artichokes, not Jerusalem artichokes, which are in fact a root and look like knobbly pink fur apple potatoes, if you're familiar with those. I don't like those type of Jerusalem or artichokes. I don't grow them, but I love globe artichokes. Um, They are stunning in my veg patch. And if you don't have room, you can actually grow them in another part of the garden, as I said. But often people grow them just for their ornamental value. But I love them for their silver foliage, their architectural interest, the tasty fruits they send up 
and I allow some to go to flower and they have the most deep purple stunning flowers that are just they're like a giant deep luminous bright purple thistle that's my best way of describing it the artichokes open up and the pollinators love them and I love them too so they tick all my boxes so as I said earlier they are easy to grow and even easier to be raised from seed each artichoke plant will produce a small crop in its first year so it's a win-win so if you sow or if you had sown this spring you would be having a few small artichokes this summer it's not too late to sow you can sow some now you can sow all the way through to the autumn because artichokes are perennials which means they go on year to year um it uh they like to be sheltered so my vegetable garden is fairly sheltered um but it's because that they are Mediterranean plants, they like to be sheltered and slightly protected from frost. Although on saying that, I've only lost one plant this winter and I thought I'd lost the whole lot. So four have come back spectacularly. The silver foliage remains all year with mine um, and it makes a beautiful addition to the veg patch. They somehow slightly sort of flop over the hedges. They just look lovely. They do, however, take up a lot of space, so you need to plan accordingly. One plant will give you a number of artichokes, so you would need probably two plants to give you a steady supply. Um, they love warmth, they love full sun and free draining soil, hence they are a perfect vegetable to consider going forward with our hot, dry summers. The variety that I grow is called Green Globe. It has really good sized fruits. It's got a slightly nutty flavour. And if left a flower, it's this stunning purple thistle, which the bees, butterflies, all the pollinators love. They, they just hover all over them. Um, they're easy to raise from seed, as I said, but equally you can buy plants fairly inexpensively and they are, they're not uncommon. So you can just put into the search engine, artichoke plants, you can buy them online or you probably would find them quite easily in your local garden centre. They do prefer to be planted in the ground rather than a pot because the roots go very, very deep. But also on a watering front, it's much easier to leave them in the ground because they will find water much easier than you having to feel you've got to go out and water them every night. As they mature, they do become very large. So their width can be between three to four foot. So you need to bear that in mind when planning where you're going to put them. Um, and they will need to be divided about every five years when they become so big. Spring is the best time to divide them. And often when you do divide them, you find there's a good root system on the portion of plant that you're taking off and you can replant these. And within a week, they will come back and look brilliant. So as soon as you replant them, the leaves will go very limp and you'll think, oh, well, what does that Julia Parker know? Give it time, be patient like most good gardeners should and um, some water and in a week they will bounce back and it's just brilliant. And of course, I like a thrifty tip. So plants are free is always a win-win. And also it's quite good if you have lost some during the course of a harsh winter like we've just had. They grow very tall, not just wide, so taller than me. I nearly need a stepladder to pick them but got away with it today. Um, sheltered location with plenty of space and they hate being waterlogged so I think I said that earlier that's why they're a Mediterranean plant and will thrive well in a hot summer 
Start the seeds off inside and then plant outside when all risk of frost has gone. And the same goes if you've bought a plug plant as well. So keep it sheltered, harden it off and then put them outside when they're a reasonable size. Give them lots of water to start off with and then once established, back off. They, you can probably get away with not watering them at all. They need very little care and maintenance. Just a mulch in the spring, a division every five years. And in the autumn, I leave the dried flower heads on the stems because they add loads of height. The birds come along and take the insects that try and nest in them. And I leave them over winter because the insects nest inside. It's like a natural bug hotel. And then at the end of winter, when they're looking slightly too ragged for my liking, I will remove them and I save long stems, which are really strong. And I use them as plant supports elsewhere in the garden and I compost the flower heads. Artichokes are ready here on our patch in June. So I harvested my first three today. And the more you pick, the more it increases a production of fruit. You harvest them when the artichokes are still in quite tight, close bud. So when they start to open, you don't really want to harvest them. They can become a bit tougher on the leaves outside. And also, they're a magnet for insects to crawl in. So it makes them more tricky to pick and cook because actually you've got an infestation of black fly or something that's crawled in and all I do is I cut up cut them off from the main stem and I pop them in a pot of boiling water for about 40 minutes and then I just serve them with melted butter or a vinaigrette and they are delicious to eat them you just remove all the leaves and you just nibble the little bits of flesh off the edge of the leaves um, one at a time and then eventually as you get closer closer to the center of the artichoke you hit this stunning heart and the heart is really the best bit. It's full of flavour, it's nutty and it's fresh and it is delicious. So the best varieties to grow, I think, is the one that I grow, which is Green Globe. There is a really lovely one called Romanesco, which is a purple, spiky, highly attractive one. But watch out because they can be so dangerous. If you think gooseberries are spiky, then you should try one of these artichokes. You can get <laughs> cuts all over you by harvesting them. And then there's another one called Purple Globe, which is less terrifying. I mean, there are other varieties, but those are my three tried and tested ones. And actually, I'm just sticking with Green Globe now because after all, I want something simple and easy to pick and that's got full of flavour. Well, my mouth is watering at the thought of it, and I'm sort of I feel quite transported to somewhere hot and sunny now. But for the, <laughs> anyone who hasn't eaten an artichoke before, you said they were a bit nutty. Can can you describe the flavour a bit more? Oh, it's quite hard, isn't it? I would say like a kind of a, a, a nutty mushroom is probably my best way of describing them. It, mm. I don't know. It's just an unusual flavour. So something to try if you've not tried it before. And it, does it resemble anything like those artichokes you get in jars from a delicatessen or is it uh, quite well, different? They, yeah, you see, yes and no, I think they lack the flavour. Right, interesting. So you're going yeah. to get something that's got far more personality yes. than, than something you could buy in a jar. Yeah. And I don't like to put you on the spot, but and, and this is something I should probably know, but what is the difference between a cardoon and an artichoke? Do you know? Well, the only difference that I know of is that one you can't eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would say the cardoon fruits that look like an artichoke are slightly more pointy and smaller. Right, okay. That is a good question, though. So you don't eat those, but you do eat the artichoke. I'm sure we're going to get somebody who will comment, and we would love that so that we know <laughs> what the difference is. But, but you're right about them being... Um, 
a great garden plant as well because here in Broadstairs um, we have them growing on the seafront and they've been used to replace the carpet bedding scheme. So in place wow. of all of the bedding we have cardoons, salvias, sage and thyme and all sorts of herby plants which very much goes back to what we've been talking about, drought tolerant yes. planting. Yeah, lovely. And that, of course, leads me on to my um, pick of the bunch, which <laughs> is, as I said earlier, salvias. And I've chosen these because they're just superb, justifiably popular drought-tolerant plants that are enjoying a huge surge in popularity right at the moment. When I was a lad, a salvia was a dumpy annual plant with very angry red flowers that screamed keep off when you saw them lined up <laughs> around the edge of beds in public parks and I vividly remember a house around the corner from us that had a straight concrete path that led from the front gate to the front door and along it would always be a line of salvias and then behind that a line of African marigolds and behind that something else horrid that was just just starchy and stiff and looked the same for months on end. Sounds uh, very thankfully... 1970s. <laughs> yes, well it was, it was, <laughs> not that I'm not giving anything away there. But of course a bit, between then and now quite a lot has happened and it sort of started off with the Balkan sage which is Salvia nemorosa that came along and that's a lovely uh, plant particularly if you have a traditional a garden or you have roses it has intense violet blue flowers and a very vertical sort of form which is quite stiff and starchy but very good when you've got more informal planting around it and if you're liking the sound of that then caradonna is the classic uh, variety of salvia nemorosa that you will probably have seen in gardens but what really upped the salvia's game was the introduction of two varieties that most people will recognise. The first one that came along was a shrubby salvia with aromatic leaves called hot lips and that was discovered growing in a garden in Mexico in 1999. So listeners are going to know this from the flowers which can be all white, all red or a combination of both and some people attribute the colour to what temperature it is. So it often starts off more red and becomes more white as it gets hotter. I don't know whether there's any truth in that, but, but there's a lot of variation. And of course, the reason for the name hot lips is because the flowers look a little bit like a pair of lips. So it's a shrubby plant. It grows incredibly easily from cuttings. So I think a lot of this salvia got shared around very early in its introduction. And it's now a garden staple. But if red and white isn't quite your thing, there are hundreds of cultivars of either salvia microphylla, salvia grigii or salvia gemensis. They all look quite similar to one another. So unless you're a botanist, I would not worry about it too much. <laughs> but there are some cracking varieties. I was just admiring one yesterday, which is called Nachvlinde, um, which is a beautiful inky purple colour and has a quite a nice sort of low habit. 
Royal Bumble is the opposite. That's bright red, but very upright. And I've seen it growing inside little box hedges like the ones you have, Julia. Oh, so nice. sort of a sort of filler plant and it looks really pretty against the green. If those colours are too strong for you, then Trilisic Creamy Yellow. Someone didn't have very much imagination that day. <laughs> but uh, that is a nice sort of clotted cream colour, as you would expect from a salvia named after a Cornish garden. And one which is just coming out in my garden right now, which I bought because it's the name of my partner's godchild, is Jemima's Gem, which is cerise, big cerise flowers and a very sort of tall plant. So... All lovely salvias, they are very, very easy and unlike those first two salvias I mentioned, not in the least bit stiff and starchy, so they fit in very well with other garden plants. But that wasn't the end of it for the salvia because in 2005 there was another big discovery and that was made by an Argentinian chap called Rolando Uria and he discovered a salvia called Amistad which is now about as ubiquitous as hot lips and he didn't discover it in the wild, he is a, a plant collector but he actually found it at a plant show and immediately recognised that this is this plant had potential to become one of the most popular garden plants in our garden. It has green, emerald green foliage on very tall, upright stems, a little bit nettle-like, I suppose, mm. in terms of the shape of the leaves and the stature of the plant. And on top of that comes these violet flowers out of almost black. Uh, brats on the on the, the stems and these appear for months and months on end not unheard of I think for Amistad to still be flowering at Christmas sort of hanging on in there and depending on what sort of summer we have it can be starting about now and it can be out for six months it has appeared everywhere in every garden at the back of borders in pots um, in more naturalised areas, and it's just a handsome plant that doesn't seem to suffer any kind of ills at all. Not wishing to stop there, Rolando went on to introduce a cerise pink version called Amante, so look out for that if the purple isn't your cup of tea. And now there's also a candy pink version of Amistad called Pink Amistad, another <laughs> imaginative name, um, so, you know, other plants with equally good uh, habit. I am a fan of a very similar uh, salvia called Blue Suede Shoes, which has a lovely, lovely soft blue, powdery blue flower. So this group of salvias, which all comes from a very similar origin, is gradually growing. So like the other salvias I was talking about earlier, there will soon be more and more colours to choose from. Of course, there are 900 different species of salvia, probably more than that, uh, big and small. And some of the species themselves are well worth growing. We have salvia mexicana growing in our greenhouse, only because I'm always too lazy to bring it out. But it has royal blue flowers and it grows to about 10 foot tall in the greenhouse. It grows out through the windows. So by November, when it flowers, there's more of the salvia outside the greenhouse than inside. <laughs> 
Salvia Conferta Flora is another one to look out for, especially if you grow exotic plants or you have an exotic bed, you want to grow something with your bananas and your gingers. That is a great looking salvia with flowers that look a bit like a chenille stick that's been scattered with little bits of orange. It's You have to see the flowers to believe them. And of course, we are surrounded by salvias, even if we don't know what they are. So sage is a salvia. And if you ever have a sage that flowers, you will instantly understand what the relationship is with the other ones I've been talking about. And rosemary has recently been reclassified by those clever botanists who have decided that actually rosemary wasn't its own genus of plants. It was actually part of the salvias. What you will recognise from all of the things I've described is that they like a sunny spot and they like well-drained soil and the stonier and poorer almost the better. So those people with that kind of soil are often deprived of choices but actually they don't need rich soil. You shouldn't feed salvias because it will only encourage them to produce leaves rather than flowers. If you're gardening on heavy clay, which many people are, then you're going to need to add lots of drainage. Julia's just put her hand up, not that anybody, <laughs> not that anybody can see, but Julia will have this problem. So you've got two options in this situation. You can either add lots of grit and gravel and lighten up your soil before you plant them, or you can grow them in pots because they're very, very good grown in pots, particularly the smaller ones. If you grow the taller ones in pots, then staking them is the best idea. They do not like to be wet in winter. So just the same as Julia's artichokes, what will get rid of them is not necessarily cold, it's the combination of cold and wet. And I find that mulching as a solution to that can be quite dicey because I don't think that they like that wet sludgy stuff up around their stems. So if you're going to leave them outside, the best thing you can do is leave the stems on, let the air circulate around them. Maybe if you want to pile up some loose leaves over the surface or a little bit of straw and just take your chances. The other option is to either dig them up and treat them a bit like a dahlia. So dig them up, put them in a pot of dry compost, put them somewhere dark and frost free and then bring them out and start watering them again in spring and they should shoot. Or you can take cuttings and uh, overwinter the smaller plants which will grow very quickly the following year and you can just discard the originals or let them take their chances outside. Plant your salvias out around now. You can plant them through the summer and many gardens you will see the gardeners planting salvias out to take the place of other plants that are getting a bit weary. So salvias peak September, October, November very often. So they're great fillers for late summer colour. But if you do buy a plant quite late in the year, I would recommend that you keep it in its pot overwinter it somewhere and then plant it out the following spring. Yeah, that's good advice. So all in all, very, very easy. It's hard to lose a salvia if you're diligent. There are lots of places you can get great salvias. Middleton Nurseries are specialists. You will have seen those at the Chelsea Flower Show. And Dyson's Nurseries here in Kent is another great source of salvias. But you'll find that most nurseries and garden centres have a good selection owing to their popularity. 
So that is my drought-tolerant pick of the bunch. Well, brilliant pick of the bunch, Dan, because actually you can pick them and bring them in as cut flowers as well, can't you? So it's a double pick of the bunch, I think. I didn't know that you shouldn't feed them. Not that I feed my main beds, but that's interesting that they just send up more foliage. And uh, yeah, I do... I think it's easy for people to forget, and I have been guilty of this, that they are late flowering. So more often than not, you can think, oh, that salvia hasn't come back. Oh, it's, you know, given into the winter. But it's just much later in the season to come forward. So don't give up on them if you think they haven't reappeared. I think you have to be patient, don't you? You have to be very patient. And we have some pineapple sage growing on the allotment, which is another plant I couldn't recommend highly enough. It has the most amazing scent and beautiful red flowers, which you can scatter on salads and things late in the year. But it sometimes doesn't reshoot until middle or end of May. And you look at this poor, sorry stump and think, well, that's it, game over. Yeah. And then it will, it will come back. So don't be hasty. I think, as we said... In a previous episode, with any plants that you think might not have come back after the winter, now, midsummer, is the time to make the call no sooner. So just, just give them a little bit of time. Yeah. So we're coming to the end of the last episode of this series, and we usually round off with a list of jobs you can be doing in your garden. But as we've shared so many tips already this week, we're going to make life easy for you and put a summary in the show notes. I've also written a guide to creating a drought tolerant garden which features lots of tips and tricks we've discussed in our hot topic and lists of plants that you can try growing in your garden if you've lost a few this year. Brilliant. So that's all from us folks for the summer. Dan will be continuing his shows and events through July and August including the Plant Fairs Roadshows at Hurstman Sioux Castle on June the 25th and Arundel Castle on July the 2nd. He does love a castle. He'll also be at the Kent County Show on the 7th, 8th and 9th of July and his tiny tropical garden at the Watch House is open on July the 29th and the 30th, 12 noon until 4pm. You'll find all the details in the show notes on his events page at dancoopergarden.com. That's right, there's no rest for the wicked. Julia will be found mostly in her garden in Sussex or in other people's gardens, advising them on veg growing, which I think is something we would all appreciate. She's heading to France soon for a break with her family, so no doubt she'll return with lots of drought-tolerant planting ideas and a basket or two from the local markets. Alatex will be at the RHS Hampton Court Palace Garden Festival from the 4th until the 9th of July. Then they have another open day on the 18th of August from 9 until 4. And looking ahead to the autumn, they'll be at the Goodwood Revival from the 4th until the 10th of October. So a packed programme for them. That's all for this episode and indeed this series. So it just remains for me to say a big thank you and goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me. Have a great summer, everyone. And watch out as we hope to bring you a bonus episode from somewhere well-known and inspirational over the coming weeks. In the meantime, happy gardening. And we look forward to entertaining you with series two at the end of the summer. You've been listening to the Two Good Gardeners podcast with Dan Cooper and Julia Parker. Sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not click follow on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss out. Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us to reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a new series in a couple of months. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at stancoopergarden.com, at parkers underscore patch and at two good gardeners. Or you can visit our website. You'll find the addresses in the show notes. If you've got questions for either of us or suggestions of what you'd like us to feature in the next series, please email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com. Until the autumn, happy gardening!